Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's do this thing, Nicholas yeah. Gruen. Now, uh, I'm sure most people listening to this know who you are: economist, entrepreneur. CEO of Lateral Economics. It seems like you write every day on Club Tropo. At the moment, I do with COVID doing what it's doing, but right. uh, normally a bit less so, yes. And you and I go way back. You were listening, along with Tony, you were listening to my podcasts back in like 2007. I, back, I, in the, I, back in the years of the Napoleonic Wars. The Napoleon Show, which I think was where Tony first started listening to my podcast as well. It Is was. that right, Tony? Yeah. It was, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just after I, I got my first iPod. And then Tony moved to Toronto where David Markham happens to be living these days. So those guys became drinking buddies. So there you go. We all go back to the late 2000s. But I don't think you and I have ever done a podcast together, Nicholas. Uh-huh. I think I, I think we might have. I think we might have done one, but we might not have. I don't know. No, I, th- I, think, we, I think I've heard one. Yeah, right. I think we've done one. I had another look and I found it back in 2012. Nicholas and I did a podcast on the bailouts for the auto industry in Australia. But I remember having lunch and us talking about Churchill, mostly, over lunch. Okay, Fifth- yeah, that sounds right. Fifth- well, that's what you would talk to. If you don't know that much about Napoleon and you're talking to a Napoleon freak, you can always go for Churchill. I'm a bit of a Churchill freak. Right. And Churchill was a Napoleon freak, and it all comes yeah, together. Yeah, that's right, exactly. So we invited you onto the show, and you were generous enough to make your time available to talk about, obviously, a number of things. What's going on with the economy today? What's going on with the economy in the future? And MMT, which doesn't isn't a drug. I keep thinking it's uh, DMT. But that's uh, apparently something else. This is a drug, a drug for uh, governments, MMT, modern monetary theory. Um, and I know you've written a lot of stuff recently on all of these topics. Where would you like to start? Uh, well, I've got a bit of a horse in this race, um, uh, which is something I've wrote about. Um, uh, well, I, I think I'm on the record back in 2014, but I've been working it up for a while. And it's called Central Banking for All. And um, that's where I, I, I mean, I'm not I don't spend a lot of my time as a macroeconomist, but that's where I tried to get on top of the uh, I won't say the intricacies of the banking system, but the confusing uh, the, the banking system is in, at, at heart a very simple thing. But you need to be thinking of assets and liabilities at the same time. And it's all. And you find an awful, and and so that's one reason why money is such a place for cranks, uh, and it's also a great place if you want to make some money as a part of a system which is quietly stealing from other people. So money has been very controversial for a long time, uh, in America particularly, and it's bred its own uh, it's bred all kinds of cranks. I'm not saying MMTs are cranks, but uh, there are there are lots of theories of money around. And um, I'm a bit of I, I have a bit of a rule here, which is although I try to detect cranks and ignore them, I also have a very healthy regard for my own ignorance, and that comes with a bit of a sting in the tail because I have a 
just as healthy regard for everybody else's ignorance. And I think <laughs> uh, there are a lot of people going around with a fair, who are overly confident of their own framework. And I look around for $1,000 bills on the pavement, things where most ways of looking at the world would tell you this is a this is a big opportunity this can this is a way of doing things better uh, and where those things sort of lead you to the the minimum number of doubts and so when you were talking to me about talking about MMT um, firstly I told you I certainly didn't want to pose as an expert about that or anything else uh, but rather as someone who tries to figure these things out on their merits and secondly I mentioned to you that it seemed to me that there are um, there are sort of if you want to think about alternatives to the system we've got, I'd like to suggest there are four. Uh, mine is one, um, and maybe we can come to that after we talked about the others. Modern monetary theory is another. Uh, there was a thing called the Chicago Plan, which which was cooked up in response to the Great Depression from in the University of Chicago. Uh, I think it was articulated fully in 1939. What's intriguing about this is that it's a very dramatic expansion of the role of government, which was proposed by the University of Chicago and enthusiastically endorsed by Milton Friedman after the war. Uh, so that's a pretty interesting thing to talk about. Um, there is a modern, what I would call a modern version of that, which is sovereign money, uh, the idea of sovereign money. Uh, so we, and then there's MMT, and then there's my uh, approach, which I will do my best to present to you as the logical consequence of all that thinking, and the one that's most likely to generate good things and the least likely to generate. Uh, unexpected side effects. Wow. Well, I'm excited. I can't wait. Tony, do you want to? <laughs> okay. Tony, do you want to start with something in particular? Is it possible just to get a succinct summary of what MMT is? I mean, my 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 take on it is that we're we're getting close to it now with the way that there are central banks are uh, flooding the economy with money, um, but it must be kind of one step further than that. Uh, well, it's an entire theory uh, which uh, I like to think of I'd like to think of it in the um, uh, follow by following up a comment of Keynes. So Keynes described the gold standard as a barbarous relic. And what he was saying there was that we can do better, that money is a human creation, a social creation, a, social, a, a sort of social agreement on a common hallucination, if you like, that we will treat a particular thing as a unit of value. And he was saying, well, if you've got this technology, this social technology, there are all kinds of costs in anchoring it to a physical reality. And that ultimately... Anchoring this thing to a physical reality um, is, is also unworthy of humans. In other words, humans are trying to constrain themselves by pretending that money is something that it isn't, that money is gold, uh, rather than a social technology, a common social hallucination that we set up so that we're all 
playing the same game. So Keynes had got as far as to say we we should regard gold as a sort of a a, a a superstition, if you like, the idea that a monetary system has to be built on an, on a, a a physical token of value. I think of MMT as it's it, uh, Keynes spoke about a, a a school of thinking called Chartalism, which was founded by a guy called Knapp at the towards the end of the uh, 19th century, a German um, economist, and he tried to develop. Uh, thinking about the economy uh, or thinking about monetary policy around this fact that money is a entirely for is a is a invisible liquid if you like a, 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 something like the oil in a in an engine but it costs us nothing to produce it but we have to produce it in limited quantities otherwise it loses its value and so MMT is an attempt, in my way of telling the story, is an attempt to rebuild our understanding of monetary policy around this fact that fiat money, the money that we see in our pockets, which is just a piece of plastic, and we say this is worth $20 or $100, um, that this is something which we agree to treat as having value but costs us nothing to produce. Uh, and I would say, I, my, what my reading of MMT is that in some kinds of senses, Keynes didn't go far enough in his rethinking of how money works when money is fiat money. Does that, and, and so what you're saying, Tony, about MMT being essentially money financing, in other words, the central bank just printing money, that's, I mean, MMT doesn't say you should do that or shouldn't do that, and no framework except for ideological frameworks say that you should or shouldn't do that, but they give you a framework within which you think about the circumstances in which you should do that and the circumstances in which you shouldn't do that, and MMT is much more relaxed about money financing than, than more Keynesian positions and other uh, more conservative positions again. And of course, we also have gold bugs in our world. Okay, so um, maybe if I could just ask you then to explain what fiat money means. That was a term I heard you use then. Yeah, yeah, well, I tried to along the way. And fiat money, so, so I, when I was a kid, uh, we had 50 cent coins uh, which were the last part of the coinage that had any intrinsic value, and they had some silver in them. And uh, they were phased out fairly quickly because the silver, ended, with inflation, the silver ended up being worth about twice the value of the, the face value of the coin. And that, that's a little introduction to, uh, to listeners of some of the inefficiencies of something like a gold standard where you tie the value of money to a physical thing. Uh, now, fiat money is uh, the money that exists uh, in banks. Uh, I, I can. Uh, the, there is a technical reason why some people will tell me that I'm telling you something wrong there, uh, but I won't go into that unless you want me to. But 
a simpler way to think of fiat money is just the notes in your pocket which have no intrinsic value. Their value comes from the fact that you can take them to a shop, the shop can uh, take them and knows that it can pass them on to somebody else and that their value will be on it. It's got nothing to do with the intrinsic uh, value in the token that you exchange. Okay, so I get the concept that the, that the value of money or the way we use money is a social construct but we, and we all play by the same rules. Yeah. Uh, how does that, you know, if I go back then to just, you know, economics 101, yep. aren't, aren't there then some practical limitations with that? Because what we're seeing now, in my opinion, is the government just printing and printing and printing and printing in money, but we're not seeing the laws of supply and demand work. So the value of that money isn't going up or down very much anyway. And that, I'm just trying to get my head around how, how can that work? How, how, how do we not have deflation or stagflation or, or inflation? In this case, we've, uh, there's a lot of money being generated and we haven't generated inflation. Yeah. Um, the, the reason that that hasn't happened is that we're in a very unusual situation. And this is the sort of thing that basic Keynesianism points out that, uh, so Keynesianism is a, is a one way of thinking about Keynesianism is that it is a commentary on this idea that uh, money is like a liquid. And uh, if you increase the amount of money, you lower the price, uh, you know, you, you uh, lower the value of that money. Um, so, uh, so, so uh, Keynesianism, the reason we can produce all this money is that, uh, and, and it doesn't stoke inflation, is that that money is not being used to go and have a big spending spree because everybody's extremely worried. Uh, so, so long as the money isn't spent or so long as the money doesn't generate spending which exceeds the productive capacities of the economy, you won't get inflation. And that's something that uh, I guess both monetarists and Keynesians from the 1970s would, would agree on. Uh, the, the interesting question, and, and what a lot of people say about MMT is, well, you know, that's all very well. You're just telling us we can make, um, you, you're telling us we can make, uh, we can print this money uh, you know, then why don't I just print myself a few million dollars a year and everything's hunky-dory? And, of course, the MMTs will say, no, you can't do that because that will generate inflation. And their basic idea is that there is a single constraint on printing money, and that is the inflationary consequences of that printing, uh, and whereas the other frameworks would agree with that, but they would also say that money is a critical instrument by which we relate the present to the future. And therefore, if you spend uh, what we're doing right now is we are spending, we are in some senses spending money that we don't have. Uh, we are paying ourselves more than we are producing, and it's not immediately producing inflation, but in other circumstances, it absolutely would produce inflation because 
if confidence was higher, people would be taking the money that they're being given and spending it. And the production of the economy has gone down in this period and it would start outstripping the capacity of our, our capacity to produce and it would start producing inflation. Uh, so, so, that's, uh, so, so what I've tried to do there is explain why it's not producing inflation now and also uh, the MMT idea, the modern monetary theory idea that inflation is the, is the that you, you should be uh, happy to print money uh, except for the capacity of that money to generate inflation, at well, which point course, you stop. Of course, it is generating inflation. The problem is we just don't count property prices in our inflation basket anymore. Ah, well, that, that's right. And that's, uh, well, and nor should we if we are thinking about the cost of living. Uh, we should count, for instance, the cost of rent. Uh, but not necessarily the cost of uh, assets. Now, there's a whole story about assets, and I'd be very happy to talk about that. But um, uh, I think it's, you know, I'm, 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 I'm OK with the idea that um, assets have their own life, which are a, a function of supply and demand for assets, whereas our lives are, uh, and, you know, the... the um, the, the, the inflation that people are particularly concerned about is inflation in our cost of living. Uh, but, but anyway, I'm not telling you, uh, I, I'm far from it, far, far be it from me to tell you that asset pricing isn't important. I just think, I think it should be considered separately and then after you've done that, you might want to bring the two together. Mm, yeah. Well, I, I just think that with all the uh, central bank printing that's gone on, particularly since the GFC, it has led to yeah, it has bubbles in the stock market and bubbles in property prices, which and that's a that's a major problem, I think. Yeah, and it's it, and I think also too, what's happening is that the money's being stored on company balance sheets and not getting to the end users and therefore not being productive. So uh, I agree. I agree with that, and 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 uh, I expect there will be MMTs who will come charging at me um, and say I'm wrong. And uh, I'm sure there will be parts of the MMT literature which show that in the case of particular writers, I'm wrong. But MMT has struck me as not particularly concerned and not particularly targeted at that issue, which is asset price inflation and the way in which commercial banks lending against assets fuel asset price inflation. Mm -hmm. And I think the other strange thing that might happen is I wouldn't be surprised at all if we have a demand recession in the, in the near future or the future anyway, uh, because of supply chains being constricted as we tend to become more nationalistic rather than globalistic. And as things like... like is that then a supply recession? Uh, no, uh, sorry, uh, sorry, supply recession, you're right, my mistake. Yeah, supply recession. Um, and, you know, once the oil market shakes out with less players, I could see that going up in price, which could be a, an, another recessionary input. But I think the only lever that the, at least the RBA and perhaps the Fed has is to, is to keep printing money to try and keep inflation down But in that circumstance. But it, it's stoking inflation in the resident economy. So you know, we've got, a, we've got a, a one-armed man playing a slot machine and all he can do is pull the lever. Uh, but it's not really helping. As uh, Mervyn King said, while he was 
governor of the Bank of England in 2010 of all the ways to configure, configure banking the way we've done it is the worst. <laughs> and we haven't really changed it much. Yeah. So, so okay, I guess we're in agreement about how things are working now. What, what I find interesting is how people are taking the current way the economy is working, and particularly during this COVID crisis where the government is now putting money into the end users' pockets and saying, we'll worry about how we fund that down the track. And, and I guess the asterisk on that statement is debt is cheap, so we're not going to worry about it too much. Well, and the MMT asterisk on that is what debt? Yeah, exactly. If we can, if we can print more money... We've yeah. printed money. Uh, what's the uh, and we we have, there isn't inflation. What's the problem? And when there is inflation, we'll unprint the money. We'll we'll find a way to withdraw the money. Right, which will be quite horrendous, I think, when it happens. But anyway, um, but yeah. So that's that's what I find interesting. We're we're a, a very short hop, skip, and a jump away from the government saying, look, we can solve all the problems now by just print, printing some money and giving it to the uh, particular users who need it. And that has, I think, quite quite large ramifications, not just for the economy, but even for democracy going forward as well. If the government can print money, it doesn't need to tax people. If it doesn't need to tax people, then does it need to listen to them when they go to the ballot box? Well, it does need to listen to them when they go to the ballot box if it wants to stay in government if our, under our system. Uh, but... Uh, uh, the, the other thing is that we have an independent uh, central bank and uh, that's how we have uh, over the last 200 years, uh, really since the emergence of the, of the Bank of England in 1694 in, in, in London, uh, that's how we have solved that problem. We've taken away from governments the direct ability to... Uh, to print money, uh, and it's worked quite well, uh, it seems to me. Um, so I, I'm not, I'm not saying that the concerns you have are not worthy concerns, but they, but but we we have evolved quite a strong set of institutions which I think take account of those concerns, and I don't, yeah, I, I don't, um, uh, yeah, I'm not greatly worried. I, I think I would be in the United States, which is just a much more, <laughs> shall we call it a rollicking democracy. <laughs> um, you know, it's much more like it. Uh, like, it's a it's a it's a sort of a clientelist state. Um, it's it's democracy is in much worse state. And, uh, you know, it's got a highly politicized Supreme Court, for goodness sake. Um, so, yes, if you have a society like that, I would be that then your government can do less, as we're finding out through the crisis, which government has been least effective in the Western world at dealing with COVID. Tony, can I interject for a second? You, you mentioned this to me on the phone the other day, the relationship between printing money and uh, democracy being weakened, and I, I still don't understand it. How do you see that working? Well, the, the article I read about it drew the analogy be, um, between an MMT state and somewhere like Russia and somewhere like some of the African countries that have very large revenues from oil or, or, or the Middle Eastern countries that have very large revenues for oil. Uh, and and in, in each of those cases, you have a, 
you do have democracy, but it's a very limited form of democracy because basically the population says, uh, if, I, if I put this guy on, in power and he has unlimited resources and funds and so I'm not taxed very hard and when I need something, it's provided for me, is democracy really a big deal? So people willingly give up democracy in return Correct. for having all of yeah, their needs we, met? Correct, yes. And so, yeah, see, my view is that that, that kind of trade off is on display all the time. That any of these systems can, this can happen. Money will blow up if it's, if it's handled by corrupt institutions. We've known that, uh, you know, uh, for a long, long time. Uh, you might have heard of Gresham's law bad money drives out good. Uh, I've discovered a year or so ago that the, one of the first, uh, people since ancient that law actually is there's ancient versions of those laws from the ancient world and nicholas copernicus expressed the same sentiment uh so that is an old old idea and it's a true it's a true idea and western institutions so saying that you can get hyperinflation in zimbabwe doesn't tell you very much um you can get lots of things uh you know, the Nazis didn't have hyperinflation, but they had a whole bunch of other horrible things. Um, so so I, I don't really know what that proves. Oh, it doesn't prove anything, Nicholas. I guess this is all speculation. But Australia is starting to remind me of what Japan looked like in the 90s, for example, um, with high, high, high property prices, um, uh, low productivity, low inflation, uh, people were taking out mortgages that had to be paid off by their grandkids, uh, and, and they've had 20, 20 years of, of stagnation since then. Yeah, I agree with you. And the idea that asset prices are so much higher is a very, very important economic phenomenon. It's, it's important microeconomically for the reasons you described, that people can't buy houses. It's very important macroeconomically because it makes macroeconomies more fragile. Um, I'm, not a, I'm not a fan of any of this stuff. And because asset prices are socially determined, because they're a, they're a public good in the sense that they're system determined, um, maybe another way of putting what you've said, Tony, is that they, and I would then fully agree with this, that very high asset prices then place much higher demands on governments to have basic integrity uh, because so much depends on these asset prices and governments get drawn into managing asset prices. So I think that that's kind of true. Yeah. Uh, and I, that's one of the reasons why I'm really uh, have sort of gradually worked my way towards a fairly traditional Keynesian idea, which is essentially what we set up um, after World War II. Uh, we decided that the Great Depression was a bad idea and the way the economies worked in the 50 to uh, in the 50 years up to the Great Depression was pretty chaotic and and unfair and disastrous. And one of the things we did was, and it's a word that we don't like in our culture, but we had financial repression. It were just oodles of things that banks couldn't do. Mm. And, and banks, if you're a bank manager, you know, you, your aim, you would be well enough paid, you'd be a pretty boring 
guy, let's face it, in those days you had to be a guy as well. You would you would be hoping for your gold watch, a nice pension, and the rest of your days at the golf club. Uh, and you can see lots of ways in which that's a more boring world, and there are some ways in which it passes up opportunities for economic growth in the funding of innovation and so on. But if we just think as we have for the last 30 years, well, the solution is just to deregulate rather than say, let's hang on to lots of these bits of repression that really are working for us and that we became complacent about because, we, you know, what depression, what crisis? Mm. Uh, well, we'd solved those crises. We didn't have crises of the magnitude of the great, of, of the great, rep uh, you know, the great recession of 2008 and, 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 and so on. If we had just said we want to hang on to repression, but we want venture capital to go to startups, we want our companies to be have good access to equity and to development finance, but we don't want a financial free free for all, and we don't want our stock market and our money markets turning into a casino. That would have been that's the direction we should have taken, and the sort of direction that someone like Marvin Minsky would have. I've just this morning was reading some stuff that he was writing in the 70s, and he wrote an article. I'll send it to you if you're interested. Um, uh, which is in 1981 when Reagan had taken power. And he said, well, OK, Reagan wants to undo a lot of this. And this is, you know, these are the things that are worth, the, the, you know, these are, the, these are the problems. He's trying to tackle genuine problems. And, he, and he's arguing he shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And you can deduce in retrospect that that's, that, that, that that's what he did. Is this the same mm -hmm. Marvin Minsky who came up with the theory of mind? No. The AI researcher? Uh, no, different, no, different it's one. No, it's the okay. other one. And I'm wrong. It's Hyman Minsky. Excuse me. Oh, okay. It's Hyman Minsky. Uh, all these strange Jewish names, you know. Um, oh, that's, and, that's good. Uh, I, I, I was starting to think Marvin Minsky was going eight, a little bit broad. Yeah. yeah, 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 that's okay. right. Okay, no, no. Let's, yeah. let's move on if we can, guys, because I get the feeling that the two of you guys could talk about this for hours. Uh <laughs> And, and, you know, I, 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 for one, would love to hear more of that conversation. But let's just move on, if we can, to talk about the economy right now, uh, the COVID economy. Uh, mm. You know, what, what are your thoughts, Nicholas, on, you know, what, where we are at really now and, you know, what projections, predictions you have for what the next six to 12 months might look like? Okay, Um well, I mean, to me, uh, to me, the fact that jumps out at me is that we have uh, imposed major constraints on production, and we will want to and and locking everyone up. It turns out certainly reduces their consumption, but it doesn't reduce you know probably our the quality of things we want to buy at the supermarket has gone up and so on, uh, but. Uh, but it, but but I think we are in a situation which where we will probably be surprised on the downside. Depends how quickly we get back to action, but we will probably be surprised on the downside uh, as to you know supply chains that have been broken by this process. As to you know the economy is a a, a, a 
Um, it doesn't have to be a fragile thing, but it is a delicate thing. It's an immensely complex thing. So I would be wary of us. Uh, I would be wary of the downside. There's also, you know, there's also the financial system, which is extremely fragile. Uh, so those are those are some thoughts. Let me just, I, I, since you've asked me to predict the future. Let me take the discussion in a slightly different direction. It's a little, it's become a bugbear of mine actually since COVID and since I've seen how bad the uh, this we've been on this subject of predicting the future. Not just economists who've in fact I think in this crisis done very well, but epidemiologists. I don't think when we think about the future, our job is to predict the future. Our job is to manage risks. Uh, now, you see this in, you know, if you go to a, a fairly lame-brained corporate retreat, they will, in the first session, they'll say, well, what do we want? And then, it, you know, you end up with something completely inane, like the, you know, the greatest supermarket chain in the Southern Hemisphere in the world or something. And then they say, well, uh, how do we, what we want to do is we want to envisage a future and then we want to go there. And I think that's basically incredibly lame-brained. The world, and this is part of my general theory of my own and everybody else's ignorance. The world surprises us quite profoundly, if not on a daily basis, then certainly on a monthly basis. Things happen that we weren't expecting, and every now and again they're black swans. Or if, and and Nassim Taleb is saying this this thing that the epidemic wasn't a black swan because it could have been predicted. We just didn't know when. So what? thinking about the future should be about is to identify risks, to identify knowledge that we need, to identify knowledge and, and of the knowledge that we need, which knowledge we can be fairly confident we'll never have and which knowledge we could go about trying to find. Now, think about the way, you know, the way in which we've handled the COVID crisis. There's, we've we've done very well as an empirical fact compared with other countries, but there's been we've completely muddled our way through. the The chief medical officers can't, uh, were determined that we weren't trying to eradicate the virus. We were trying to, you know, we were trying to flatten the curve. They still can't. Um, they still can't openly say that it seems that we are trying to eradicate the virus. We're still not planning for that eventuality. We're still not we're still not identifying the things we need to know and the things we need to do in different scenarios. What we're doing is we're doing what they do on the football shows on Thursday night, which is to say we're performing our own expertise about what we know. We're saying, oh, well, I think... Uh, uh, you know, I think Buddy Franklin will play very well and he'll give so-and-so a real tough time, uh, his opponent a really tough time, rather than doing what you would hope good coaches are doing, which is to think about the risks, uh, to think about what they need to know, to think about the most cost-effective ways they can put in place the thinking and the actions that optimise those outcomes. And... Uh, I don't think we've been very good at that um, in economics or in epidemiology. If I can just step in there, Nick, I agree with you, Nicholas, but um, 
The biggest risk I see, and I guess it's part of this conversation, is that every time we have a, a, a downturn in the economy, uh, the stock market can go up because the government prints money or the, or the RBA prints money. Uh, and so in some ways, you know, capitalism is almost broken at the moment. And uh, it's, it's great because we keep making money, but like, I, I just can't see it being a long-term game. At some stage, the chicken, the chicken has to come home to roost. No, I think that that's true. Um, what you want is you want the system, you want the government and the central bank to be a shock absorber, but you get very worried when the shock absorbing is more in one direction than in another direction. In other words, more in terms of expanding than, than uh, contracting, if you like, more in terms of borrowing than paying the borrowing back. Um, and... You know, that saying, something that cannot go on forever will not go on forever. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I think that that's, that's a major problem. Uh, and um, now it's not true that we've printed lots of money. We only very recently got into this sure. quanti quantitative easing game. Sure. Uh, but uh, anyway, we've been sitting around with interest rates. Uh, I mean, I would the, when I was describing our medical officers not explaining what their what the key choices they faced were and trying to be as rigorous about those choices as possible and the information they needed I would I would and have made exactly the same criticism of the Reserve Bank on the question of interest rates for the last five or six years um, they basically sort of uh, issue these minutes from the board meetings saying, well, on the one hand this and on the other hand that. There's never been a release of any kind of modelling which you know, which is trying to rigorously get ha get a handle on the critical choices that they're making, one of which is to do what Philip Lowe had a record of being in favour of before he became governor, which was to lean against the wind, which is to say that you're not only... Uh, thinking of um, your 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 thinking when you put interest rates up or down, not just of your inflation target, but also of financial stability, um, or rather asset prices. And uh, I think anyway, that that's another long story. Uh, that's another uh, we we'd have to go into another grad for me to fully explain what I mean. But um, uh, let leave it at that. That uh, the banks. Discussion of its choices has not been couched in careful uh, assessment of different options and prioritising different possibilities. Uh, so, uh, it, it, and using models not to make forecasts, but to identify uh, risks uh, to manage and information we should try and prioritise in in getting. Hmm. And, and, of course, one of the problems is the RBA has pretty much now only one mandate, maybe two, and that's to keep inflation in a, in a particular range around 2%. Um, and, and they've got the second one now to manage employment. But, but yeah, I mean, I've had... Also, it has... A, the problem is that if you want to talk about financial stability, the interest rate is as crude a measure to help with that as, as it is for managing the economy. In fact, it's more crude. Uh, it's actually seems to have been rather better at managing the macro economy than at uh, than at um, targeting financial stability, which requires a lot more than setting interest rates at a particular uh, at a particular point.
No, I agree. In fact, we're probably inherently more unstable than we are stable by lowering interest rates because retirees can't get the normal income streams uh, they would have been able to get. And so they're going up the risk curve, which which uh, makes the financial system more unstable for them. And at the other end, young people can't afford to buy houses and get into um, owning their own house. So, oh, well, hang on, that's that's a sort of a second round effect of low interest rates. Um, yes, but but the but but interest rates enable you to buy more assets. But I, I mean, what I'd say, see, my view on that, Tony, is. Um, kind of quite sympathetic to what you're saying, but I think there's an assumption there, which is that at any point, if the Reserve Bank is being asked, should I cut rates, there, the, the financial stability question suggests they'd not cut rates. Now, I think that's wrong, and I think what they have done in pursuing the course that they have, which is very reluctant, very slow interest rate reductions, very small interest rate reductions, for about five years now, by 0.25% at a time, and they've taken the rate down from three, I think at three and three quarter percent, to now uh, basically zero, even though they say they won't go to zero. Um, uh, they've, um, you know, they've, uh, they, they've created a one-way bet mm. because. Everybody knows that they're being for. Everybody knows that the low interest rates are there for a long time. So, do you really care as an investor if they're at one point two five percent or three percent? So, my argument would have been that they should have aggressively cut to try to, and that would have brought the exchange rate down, and they would have engineered a recovery, quite a strong recovery. Uh, including in the traded sector, exports and so on. And then investors would have then not faced a one-way bet. They would have known that, you know, in a year or so's time, interest rates will be on their way back up. So so you find nothing like that. Now, now that's just a thought. I'm not saying I'm right and they're wrong. What I'm saying is that's a, you know, I can express that idea to you right now and it doesn't appear in any central bank, any... RBA reasoning for how they set interest rates. I think that's that's lousy. That's that's really governing by the city, flying by the city of pants. Let me get back to you said something before about the the system has been set up to have the RBA independent, as is the Bank of England, as is the Fed in the US. What what uh, if that's their only bulwark from stopping a government from? Uh, you know, taking over the supply of money and and printing whatever it needs to achieve its ends. You know, what what stops the RBA from being, uh, if not dismantled, becoming an arm of the government? Uh, just just independence. The same thing that stops the High Court from being an arm of the government. The you know the the executive. Well, well the High High Court's enshrined in the Constitution, if I recall, but I don't think the RBA is. Uh, possibly, but it's uh, yeah. Well, I, I don't necessarily have a problem enshrining in the constitution, but don't put too much faith in constitutions. You know, the, mm. the Soviet Union had a Bill of Rights. I'm sure Mr. Mr. Mugabe in Zimbabwe had a spanking mm. Bill of Rights. Mm. Uh, so, so I would say, uh, and this is what I was sort of suggesting earlier, that 
the only thing that stops hyperinflation is exactly the same thing that stops the Prime Minister being able to put a political opponent in jail, which is a constitutional structure and a culture which would, we hope, react against that if somebody tried to do it. Um, so, so I'm not hugely worried about central bank independence, but I, uh, but I would, but but I I do agree with you that um, we're we're raising the stakes of the bet on the table, and I'd like to see the bet that we have on the table on central bank independence a lot a lot um, uh, you know a, a lot smaller stakes, uh, and we're basically lifting those stakes with every cycle. Mm. No, I agree, and, and I think that's 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 the nub of the issue for me is that once we get through COVID nineteen, and the government realizes that it could solve the problem by taking on a lot of debt um, without causing the normal problems that taking on lots of debt has, then next time it comes around, it's a thin edge of the wedge argument. Next time we have a problem, they'll take out more debt, and if the RBA steps in the way, then the RBA will be you know shut down somehow or co-opted. And then we start to get to that sort of central state solving all the needs of the people type situation. Capitalism stops to work because if, if I'm a bad bank and take risks, I'll get I'll get bailed out. Uh, well well I mean you can have you, you need a basic principle which has been fairly well honored in the United Kingdom, which is that bailouts come with wipe out of the of the shareholders. So that's what we need to. That's what we need to do. We need to say, sure, we'll bail out Westpac, and the shareholders will end up with zero balance with the existing shares. So if you just keep in mind the way the sort of basic structure of capitalism, that's obviously what you should do. Uh, now, politics being what it is, we we compromise with that. Yes, but Tony, as we saw on the news, Tony, yeah, can I can. can I ask you a question that I don't understand? You say governments taking on extra debt. Um, yes. Who who do they owe that debt to? Uh, well, Nicholas might be able to answer better than I am, but I, as I understand it, they issue bonds to to uh, to bondholders, and so the bondholders hold the debt. Um, but what we're saying is, it costs the government almost nothing to do that at the moment. Uh, so it it's not unlimited, but theoretically they could take on unlimited debt whenever they needed to because they're paying very little in interest rates to those bondholders. In fact, what happens and what is happening now and has been happening in Japan for quite a while is that the reserve bank, the central bank buys. So the government issues treasury bonds. The government itself borrows the money, issues treasury bonds. Those bonds are bought by the central bank the or, and by the market. And then the central bank typically sells down the... Tre it, it, it maintains some reserves, but it typically sells down those uh, bonds and QE represents buying them back. Uh, and, and, and what's happened in the United Kingdom recently is that the central bank, the Bank of England, has announced that it will, on a temporary basis, uh, increase the government's overdraft, in effect, from what I think was a, you know, a billion pounds to, or a bit less than that, I think, to twenty billion pounds, uh, but it, it at least it's um, at least it's trying to look like it's a normal thing to do, and it makes sense in a circumstance like this to for the central bank to finance the process of raising that amount of money because it takes time. 
so uh, meanwhile, in Japan, which owes something like 240% of GDP, the Japanese government owes 240% of GDP, I think almost exclusively to its own, uh, its own taxpayers. Um, the Japanese central bank owns about half of the bonds. So it hasn't sold the rest to the market. So if, if I'm following here, the government issues bonds. Correct. Which is creating money that it's going to then sell to... A... Uh, no, no, no. The government doesn't create money. The government issues bonds. So the government borrows money using these bonds. Right. But it... And then the Reserve Bank make, uh, creates money to buy it and then uncreates the money when it sells them. So the Reserve Bank creates the money to buy the government's bonds. Uh, yes, uh, and it wouldn't have done that in a big... It doesn't do that in a big way except in a crisis situation where the government might want to raise a lot of money quickly, but even then it does so on the understanding that it's temporary. That's the traditional way to finance it. And the alternative is the Japanese way of financing, which is to not bother about that final step mm. and say, well, we can hang on to these bonds. Uh, we're just keeping an eye on inflation. So the mm. Japanese central bank is still independent. And of course, uh, Abe is famous for having tried, <laughs> had to spend years trying to persuade the Japanese central bank to try and target higher inflation. It finally got the central bank to do so, but the Japanese central bank still can't manage to achieve its target of higher inflation. Uh, so in those circumstances, the Japanese central bank says, well, we're not going to sell the bonds. Anyway, so does that, make, does that uh, work out for you, Cameron, as an explanation of what's going on? Yeah, but I, I'm stuck on this question of debt. So let's say this is a 10-year bond. 10 years later, the government needs to... Uh, uh, pay back the bondholders, they can just do the same thing all over again, raise more money okay. to pay off the bond. Uh, well, pay back uh, if the central bank will allow them, if yeah. the central bank will allow them to, yeah. the central bank can say, we have, a, we have an inflation target uh, and, uh, you know, not only are we not buying your bonds, but we're selling some of the bonds that you've, uh, that we bought off you in the past. Mm. Uh, so the central, you know, the, the, this whole thing is very definitely dependent upon the independence of the central bank. And central banks have always, I'm actually, I'm not sure, I presume this is true in Sweden, which is the Swedish Riksbank is the first central bank, but central banks arose on the scene as private banks. They were, the Bank of England was, I think it was six wealthy people put in uh, six million pounds. I've probably got some of those facts wrong. But they were refinancing some war debt. And so they were seriously independent of government. It was a, it was a, a private, it was a, it was a private bank. And the central bank, uh, the Bank of England wasn't nationalized until the 1950s. But it did get tangled up in government for reasons that you can appreciate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's about to get even more tangled up in government. Because what what the system, I understand what you're saying about the system and it's in checks and balances. But if you have a situation where a government, you know, feels very compelled to issue more debt, and the Reserve Bank works against that, and the Reserve Bank has the magic dust in this whole system where it can make new money to buy government debt, then it's going to be 
you know, there's a there's an incentive and or there's an incentive to take over that capacity to, to make uh, new money, to buy government debt. And there's also an incentive to take someone out of the way to stop you from doing it if you're a government who's, who's you know, really up against the wall. Yeah, well, that's true. And um, that's also true of putting your political opponents in jail. And frankly, I think we worry about it too little. Uh, it's, it's odd that we worry about our democracy largely in the realm of finance, <laughs> but, but not in terms of some of the extraordinary powers that we've given our governments. You know, all they have to do is tick the terrorist box and you never hear from someone again. Um, it's not quite that bad in Australia. It's pretty much that bad in the United States. Uh, so, yeah, this is, a, you know, a, 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 an old conservative person whose name I don't remember because I never learnt it said that the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. So it happens to be true. Or in Australia, we just send the federal police into journalists' houses to take all of yes, their stuff. Indeed. And then when exactly. the... Exactly. When, exactly. When the courts say that was illegal, they say, well, OK, but let us just keep what we took anyway, because, come on, yeah, we've, right. we've got it now, right? Yeah, well, compare the treatment of Daniel Ellsberg with the Pentagon Papers. That was what he did was illegal, and the Supreme Court protected him with the treatment of Julian Assange and Edward Snowden. I mean, it's we're in different worlds. We're in, we're in absolutely different worlds. And... Uh, in some ways, our monetary... Well, look, I, I don't want to downplay what Tony's concerned about because I'm concerned about it too. But uh, the thing about money is that powerful people will always look after money. They won't look after these finer points of our democratic values, I can assure you. No, true, true. Well, Do you want to talk about any of these other things or are we out of time now? Well, listen, we, we, I, I think we could talk for hours. I think we should, I think we should uh, if you're uh, willing and able, have you on regularly to talk through this stuff in uh, more detail. All right. Well, happy to, happy to do what I can. Nicholas, it's been great. Thank you. I, I think, it, I think you, the, probably the key thing you said today was we were in a different world. And you know, this is a share, basically a stock market investing podcast. And it just strikes me as, as through the looking glass that when, when we see the economy come to a screaming halt, the, the government can issue some support and the share market goes up. I, I just, I just, you know, that's, <laughs> we're, not, we're not in Kansas anymore. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, the share market should be targeting, um, what it sees is the value of these assets over the next 20 years. And if that's the case, then asset prices shouldn't be anything like as volatile as we see them in a free market. And therefore, there is a strong case for governments to try to become, I, I would go so far as to say that they've gone from being the lender of last resort to the risk taker of last resort in the financial system. There is a strong case for that. But we all know what human beings are like and a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of power is a dangerous thing. And we're observing how dangerous, uh, how dangerous it is. Tony, mm. did you did you just yeah. basically say this time it's different? It is different oh, every well, time. It's always different, Tony. It's never the same. <laughs> 
I, it is. You're right. I did just say that this time it's different because. Oh my uh, God, I've got to throw know, out all those coffee mugs now. <laughs> well, it's, I just agreeing with Nicholas that the world's changed. Just, just the uh, when you'd expect. Well, the way I learned capitalism was if you, if you, you know, if you, if screw, you, up, something you, bad, you screw it up, yeah. you lose. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's right. But that doesn't happen. Ever since the GFC, that stopped happening. Yeah. Well, it happens. It's it it's it happens in a micro sense, and that's the most important thing because you know that the stock pickers are they're not just trying. You know, they're they're happy for there to be macro for for there to be macro stabilizers, but they're still trying to pick the stocks that make yes. money. So so it's not as busted. Uh, it's not as busted as one might think, um, but uh, there's there's actually a, a very good I. I um, uh, there's a there's a podcast, uh, sorry, a blog uh, called Synthetic Assets, which I'll send you a link to, which is by someone who's not at all well known, who I think is one of the best thinkers about a lot of these things, and uh, she's sort of arguing that the that the problem that you identify is not a microeconomic problem of moral hazard. It is that capitalism has lost its macro risk-taking function. Equity investors should be the first risk-takers, mm -hmm. uh, subject to some degree of macro stabilization by the government. And more and more, that function is they're not performing that function. And if they're not performing that function, you're, um, you're in a fairly degraded kind of world and the, and the, the macro economy is uh, likely to get sick if it doesn't have macro risk shock absorbers, um, uh, which is the world that we're working our way into with these huge rises in asset prices and debt. Well, fascinating. On that happy note. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Nicholas, for chatting. And yeah, I hope you'll come back on and we can do this okay. again and finish it. And we'll keep, keep yeah. it going anyway. Sounds like fun. Thanks, see mate. What you, see what your listeners say. Oh, they'll love us. We know that. <laughs> That's, good. That's good. Thanks, I, mate. I know, I know complacency when I hear it. <laughs> no. <laughs> Listen, you're, if... you're using. You're using. You, I recommend for your podcast the slogan that I've I've recommended for both our political parties for the last thirty years. Which is now. Now is the time for complacency. <laughs> <laughs> If we think it's an enjoyable conversation, I'm sure they yeah, will good. agree. That's good. Yeah, that's no. good. Very good. Okay. Thanks, mate. Thanks, Take Greg. care. Have a good Thanks, weekend. Cameron. Thanks, Tony. Thank Bye. Thanks, Bye. Nicholas. Bye.